The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, good day on uh, various parts of the United States and across the world. This is Joe Schuldenrein uh, with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, in reflecting on the nature of our programs over the past oh, few months, and looking over some of our surveys and some of our contacts from the social networking media, uh, it has emerged that the question of human evolution, human origins, and the nature of our evolution as a species has become the most uh, popular item that we've been talking about. And, and we get no end of questions and no end of requests for additional topics and discussions related to that theme. So what I decided to do this week is to discuss the human origins question from two perspectives. First of all, the history of human origins research, which I think gets lost in some of the glamorous discoveries that we have with respect to genetic research, the Human Genome Project, and the information that's sort of cascading our way uh, from these very spectacular scientific developments. But there is a backdrop to this research, and much of it uh, overlaps with our second theme, with, which is the archaeolo archaeological baseline to discussing this theme. So I thought it would be very refreshing to our listenership if we would get into some of the details and some of the depth that led up to the uh, present wave of uh, spectacular uh, discoveries and basically the spectacular underpinnings to what scientists are considered are, are considering to be very very compelling evidence in the direction of human evolution that that's really sort of a map and a roadmap if you will on how we're moving and how we're getting to uh contemporary thinking on this topic and i have brought uh with me for this program a very special 
guest, and that is Dr. Jeffrey Clark. Jeff is a, a renowned archaeologist and paleoanthropologist who is the author of many, many articles and monographs, 11 monographs on human biological and cultural evolution in deep time, as it were, the past four million years. Uh, Jeff has published uh, several major volumes on the theme, one of which is called Conceptual Issues in Modern Human Origins Research, New Approaches to the Study of Early Upper Paleolithic Transitional Industries, and most specifically, a volume called Rediscovering Darwin, Evolutionary Theory and Archaeological Explanation. Uh, Jeff is a Regents Professor in the School of Human Evolution and Social Change at Arizona State University. He has headed the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association and the Anthropology Section of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Jeff lectures extensively on race, racism, and ethnic conflict, the evolution of human mating, the conflict between religion and science, creation science as it, as it were, human evolution and modern human origins. A materialist to the core, as he says, and a committed evolutionist, he has been concerned most recently with the promotion of Western science as a conceptual framework for describing and explaining the experiential world, and with contesting the claims of the various anti- and pseudoscience constituencies arrayed against it, and we're going to get into that debate later on in the program. But let me introduce Jeff Jeff Clark. Jeff, thanks so much for appearing on the show. Very, very glad to be able to do it. And Jeff, let's start off with, with this question of the backdrop to human origins research. I said, as I said in the introduction, we're st most of the listenership that is sort of following the most recent discoveries is clearly focused on the genetic baseline. But human origins research goes back to the 19th century, and you are one of the recognized experts on the evolutionary history of evolutionary studies, as it were. So why don't you give us some background into that and how we got into this uh, this progress? Okay, Joe, I, I'm happy to do that. Um, um as you say, the, the question of our origins is a perennial one, and it goes back, uh, well, it goes back to classical antiquity, of course. But um, uh, another aspect of it that's worth mentioning is that uh, uh, the empirical record of human evolution has effectively doubled in the last 10 years and I thought that uh, maybe a good way to get started on this would be to go over some of the salient uh, discoveries of human evolution in general and then kind of back up a little bit and talk about uh, modern human origins, uh, which, uh, as you mentioned, is a uh, topic of interest uh, to all of us. Um, I said that uh, the empirical record has effectively doubled in the last 10 years, and uh, this is because of a discovery in Chad um, by a French paleoanthropology team headed by a man named Michel Brunet. Uh, Brunet found a, a skull, uh, which has the technical name Chadanthropus, uh, um, Sahelanthropus uh, chadensis, uh, which uh, is colloquially referred to as Tumai, uh, for obvious reasons. Anyway, this skull uh, is is something on the order of six to six and a half million years old, 
And Brunei has argued that it's a representative of our lineage based on uh, the confirmation of the base of the skull, which suggests that it might have been a biped. And the quintessential physical uh, evidence for being an early human is essentially bipedal erect posture. Um, so uh, until 2002, when this discovery was announced, uh, uh, the earliest evidence of uh, early humans uh, was only about 4 million years old or slightly older than that. Uh, so it was a very important find, but it's a single isolated skull and it um, uh, sits out there in Central Africa in an environment that was uh, actually an open savanna. There, a broad consensus had emerged in recent years that early humans had developed in a kind of a forested environment, but uh, Sahelanthropus is uh, associated with more open country. Um, then about the same time, around 2002, uh, there were discoveries in Kenya, which related to um, uh, another early hominin called Araran, uh, which uh, created quite a star, dates around 4.2 million years old, associated with a forested environment. Um, and then uh, more recently than that, uh, a comprehensive series of papers in the journal Science um, by a team headed by uh, Timothy White, Tim White at uh, Berkeley. Uh, these papers referred to a uh, early human referred to as uh, are called Artipithecus, uh, which is a very interesting discovery. Uh, you know, you often see uh, the claim made in the popular literature and even in the semi-scientific literature, things like Scientific American and so forth, that a discovery changes the picture of human evolution. Well, most of the time that's not true. <laughs> most of the time people have right. already imagined various scenarios by which uh, human evolution could take place. But uh, Artipithecus, or Artie for short, which refers to a single female skeleton, is very interesting. It dates to about 4.2 million years ago, and instead of a single skull, it's represented by a whole corpus of, uh, of both cranial and postcranial uh, fossils, over 100 in all. So that effectively it describes a, uh, a better sample of uh, a particular place and point in time in human evolution than does uh, Sahelanthropus. Anyway, what was neat about uh, Artipithecus was that it, it, it actually did have a completely unforeseen mode of locomotion. Uh, uh, it apparently was... Uh, adapted to an arborea tree, tree-like environment, spent a lot of time in the trees, probably got around in the tree world uh, by going on all fours, and it had an enormously divergent big toe, uh, something which is uh, usually taken to be a characteristic of apes. 
In terms of its adaptation, uh, it's uh, again found in a in a forested environment, and it, it probably or almost certainly was bipedal. Uh, they walked around on two legs with some with a gait more or less resembling our own when it was on the ground. But it also spent a lot of time in the trees, uh, scampered up in the trees probably at night to avoid predators. And this is reflected in the nature of its skeleton. And uh, this uh, divergent big toe and the notion of getting around in the tree world uh, as essentially as a quadruped uh, is something that no one had uh, foreseen. So in the case of Ardipithecus, uh, which was only announced in science about four years ago, if I recall correctly, um, we really do have a paradigm-changing uh, aspect of human evolution showing up. Um, so those are some of the recent discoveries that have affected uh, the picture of our origins. Uh, they are so, recent, yeah. Yeah. You know. So what you're what you're showing us effectively is that uh, the picture of of early early developments that lead up to bipedal motion is is starting to get rounded out, and we're starting to fill in a, a critical gap for a very very early time frame, which, which we really really didn't know very much about. That's right. Uh, it um, uh, we. For a long time, people have defined, scientists have defined uh, a hominin, a member of our lineage, uh, you know, a fossil human, uh, in terms of the mode of locomotion, how they got around on the ground, uh, and effectively bipedal locomotion. With Ardipithecus, though, we see a, a complicating factor in this uh, uh, because these early humans... Uh, it's not technically correct to refer to them as humans. But, right, right. But uh, because they were very different from ourselves, both biologically, cognitively, um, uh, and so forth, um, uh, were, were effectively bipedal on the ground when they were on the ground. But they also spent a heck of a lot of time in the trees, and just what they were doing in the trees is a matter for some speculation, but uh, uh, they seem to have been uh, scampering up into the trees to avoid predators, probably spending the night in the trees, uh, although that might not have been terribly effective when you consider that some of the big cats are nocturnal. Um, right. And right, also of good climbers. <laughs> mm. uh, uh, and uh, so the this criterion of bipedalism, uh, while certainly not abandoned, has become a much more complicated uh, complicated issue. So what's happening here is we're starting to really round out some of the details that we had formerly just speculated on, especially in terms of moving back the timeline and, and mm -hmm. filling in some of the critical steps in the human evolutionary and adaptive process. We will pick up on this theme after this message and we'll extend our discussion into the actual history of human origins research when we come back after these words.
news, opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants with host Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the show. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and I'm speaking with uh, the, an expert on human origins and the human evolution controversy and uh, scientific backdrop, and that's Professor Jeffrey Clark at Arizona State University. And Jeff had uh, basically explored some of the major discoveries that have been made effectively in the past decade on understanding and, in fact, pushing back the margins of of human origins back from four to six million years ago and filling in some very unique details on how people how, how these early forms moved around from the trees onto the savanna and into the open environment and we're starting to get a very very complete picture of of, of the early phases of the hominid emergence and what I'd like to ask Jeff at this point is to give us a historical perspective on evolutionary theory uh, as it pertains to the human situation. Jeff, why don't you pick it up at that, po- that point? Uh, okay, Joe. Uh, well, in the last segment, uh, as you say, I, I talked about some recent discoveries which have been very important in understanding our evolutionary origins. Um, uh, very, very briefly, um, the story of our origins, that is to say, the origins of modern humans, involves a back-and-forth uh, debate and over, over essentially a century and a half. Um, uh, the early history, a lot of this turns on the Neanderthals. The Neanderthals are perennially fascinating because of their uh, arguable differences between them and, and us, essentially. Uh, so I'd like to say a few things about uh, the history of Neanderthal research and how it bears on the question of our origins. Most people, when they, they think of Neanderthals, it's not exactly a uh, complementary term, and there's right. some historical reasons for that, right. um, which, are, which are variants with the actual record of Neanderthal research. 
these Neanderthals have changed uh, quite a bit over the past century and a half. Um, the actual earliest Neanderthal discovery was made in 1847 on Forbes Quarry uh, on Gibraltar. Uh, but the fossil wasn't uh, recognized as a human fossil or a, a human progenitor for a long time. Uh, the Neanderthal uh, discovery itself, also a quarry, uh, took place in 1856 and was an accidental find that was brought to the attention of a, of a paleontologist. Most of the people who worked on the history of, of human origins or human origins up until, oh, I would say, World War One or slightly thereafter, were effectively trained as paleontologists. They, there was no paleoanthropology, per se, uh, until after World War One. So the dominant figures uh, tended to be trained as, as geologists and paleontologists. Um, anyway... Uh, Neanderthal itself, which was uh, originally a complete skeleton, possibly even a burial, was discovered in 1856 in Germany, uh, three years before the publication of On the Origin of Species in 1859. Um, Darwin wrote a book called The Descent of Man in 1871, which in which he tried to put human evolution into the broader context of natural selection and descent with modification, as he called it. Um, most of the evidence for uh, the Neanderthals comes from Western Europe and uh, also the Levant, although Neanderthals are scattered over a slightly larger area, extending into the Crimea and so forth. Uh, they're known from um, a series of sites in Western Europe, um, discovered or excavated between about 1890 and 1914. These include sites like La Ferrisi, where six Neanderthal skeletons were discovered, Le Moustier, which is the Moustierian type site, that's the archaeological assemblage associated with Neanderthals in Europe. Um, Laquina, La Chapelle in France, is a very important fossil, um, which I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, Spee, Angus, and uh, La Noilette in Belgium, and so forth. Also, a spate of discoveries before the Second World War, uh, mainly in Italy. And in the Middle East, uh, there are six Neanderthal sites uh, in the Levant, uh, essentially concentrated in Israel and in Syria, along with uh, a very important site in Iraq in the, in the Zagros Mountains called Shanidar, which produced the remains of, of uh, about a dozen Neanderthals. So, so, so Jeff, let me let me just ask you a question here. I think I think that that people would be very interested in. As you talk about the Neanderthals, you have been talking about a little bit or hinting at the stone tool industries that they had and and specific forms that were tr traditionally associated with the Neanderthal morphology or shape or the skeletal uh, form of that of that uh, that 
element of our species. Um, can you expound a little bit on the archaeology and the stone tool industries that are distinctive for Neanderthals and how that thinking has developed? Sure. Uh, you got to keep in mind that most of the research on what we think of as Paleolithic archaeology today uh, came out of Western Europe. Uh, the pioneers or the founders of, of uh, Paleolithic archaeology were essentially Europeans uh, and primarily French. Uh, each of these different kinds of uh, fossil humans had a particular kind of archaeological assemblage thought to be associated with it. Uh, the most ancient is the Lower Paleolithic, which is typically equated with Homo erectus. Let me uh, just inter- interject that that's the old, old Stone Age. Yes, we, the, the Lower Paleolithic dates from about 2.6 million years ago right, right. Up to roughly, oh, I don't know, uh, 300,000, say. Right. Uh, then there's another kind of archaeological industry called the Middle Paleolithic, and that's the one that's associated with Neanderthals, right. at least in Western Europe. Uh, that dates from around 270,000, 300,000 down to about 50,000 50, years ago, depending upon where you are. Right. And then there's the Upper Paleolithic, which is associated with Homo sapiens, people like ourselves, which dates between about forty to 50,000 up to approximately 12,000-15,000 years ago. So those are the broad kinds of analytical units that uh, developed. They, they developed essentially in Western Europe uh, where these early discoveries were, were found. Although in terms of the fossils, uh, as I said, most of them were... Uh, studied by people who are not archaeologists, but rather uh, paleontologists. Right. Uh, might want to go over some of the early views of the Neanderthals, if, if that would be appropriate. Sure. Okay, well, uh, prior to World War I, uh, there were two perspectives on Neanderthals, which have continued up to the present day. One was that they were uh, a more primitive form of, of human than moderns, modern people like ourselves. Uh, and the other one is that they were, uh, for a period of time at least, considered a kind of uh, uh, primitive savages uh, or noble savages even prior to World War One. And these two views, uh, two contrasting views based on their uh, relationship to ourselves, have continued to the present day. Anyway, in the, in the 19th century, a German named Rudolf Virchow, another one named Gustav Schwalbe, a, a Brit, uh, Arthur Keith, were all uh, involved in studies of the Neanderthals. Uh, these people had varying viewpoints. Uh, based upon aspects of the few Neanderthal skeletons that had been discovered up until that time uh, in regard to how they were related to us. But they were also influenced in varying degrees by the the Piltdown discovery, which uh, is a very interesting uh, phenomenon, the Piltdown discovery. The Piltdown discovery is a forgery. 
uh, it was consists of a series of uh, human remains or allegedly human remains discovered between 1911 and 1913 in the Thames Valley. Now, as I said, it was a forgery, and there's a whole literature on just who might have done it. Um, but I'll, I'll spare you that. Uh, the Piltdown led to the expectation that early humans, those prior to ourselves, would have looked modern in terms of their cranial vaults, their skulls, but would have had primitive ape-like jaws. Uh, Piltdown was uh, what you might call a chimera. It was made up of an old but modern cranium, about 8,000 years old, fully modern cranium. The skull, in other words, and the jaw of an orangutan, which had been filed down and stained so it would look like the skull, and uh, so that the teeth would uh, occlude with the uh, maxillary fragments of the teeth in the skull. So uh, this led to the expectation, which held sway for 40 years. Um, that um, uh, that's the way an early human, a pre-modern human, would look. Modern this is, skull. Primitive this is taking us to into this is taking us into the fifties and sixties now. Yeah, right. The yeah. the the uh, Piltdown forgery was only debunked by a man named Kenneth Oakley in nineteen forty-nine or fifty, approximately. Right. Who uh, did a, a chemical analysis of the. Uh, uh, of the jaw and compared it with the skull and discovered that uh, uh, that uh, there have been suspicions about the jaw for a long time, but discovered that they were from uh, two different sedimentary environments. This had to do with the kinds of chemicals that had penetrated the bones and so forth. Um, Incidentally, uh, um, Piltdown was argued to be very, very old. It was argued to be Miocene, uh, or possibly even earlier, uh, Eocene. Uh, in fact, its original name was Aoanthropus Dawsoni. Uh, so we're looking at discovered. so we're looking at the ten million year old range. Oh, oh yeah, no, you get into the Miocene, you're looking at twenty right. million. You get into the Eocene, you're looking right. at way back. Right. Yeah, way, 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 way back. Uh, needless, well, uh, the human career doesn't extend that far back. It, it, it goes back to roughly six and a half million years ago. Right. So uh, anyway, the point here is just that the Piltdown forgery marked a major wrong turning for the, the discipline of paleoanthropology that lasted for 40-plus uh, years. Right. Um, but uh, and it influenced expectations about Neanderthals. And uh, to get back to the Neanderthals again, uh, over the exactly that same time period, 1911 to 1913, uh, a, a French uh, paleontologist, a man named Marcelin Boulle, published uh, two thick, exhaustive, descriptive monographs on a Neanderthal skeleton from France called La Chapelle. And this is where we get the alley-oop syndrome. Um, it set the tone for views of Neanderthals, again, for approximately 50 years to come. 
And on uh, that note, we'll have to take another break, I'm afraid, Jeff. But sure. we will look at the mystique that is Neanderthal when we come back after these messages. Okay. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to our discussion on human origins with Professor Jeffrey Clark. Uh, we've been discussing sort of a broad uh, developmental sequence, if you will, that takes us from the present understanding of the emergence of the human form, which is now being pushed back to the order of magnitude of five or six million years ago. And we've been sort of hitting sort of the major transforma- transformative periods in, in, in the evolutionary history of, of our form. And one of the more fascinating topics that, that we've been discussing and we'll pick up on right now is, is the question of who are the Neanderthals and how did they diverge and what's ca- what is characteristics of them and uh, Jeff was talking about uh, how we recognize Neanderthals and I think we're going to ease into uh, the the transition from uh, Neanderthals into modern humans, Homo sapiens sapiens and our conceptual framework which has changed over time and that this is effectively a question of perspectives and philosophy and not necessarily a sharp transition in the form and in in the uh, the developmental history of of these two subspecies, Jeff, uh, why don't you pick up on that, if you would? All righty, uh, yeah. Um, just what constitutes a modern human is is an almost philosophical question. Although, of course, uh, uh, those of us who are scientists try to break it down into uh, testable hypotheses about the differences between ourselves and Neanderthals. Uh, essentially, the whole history of Neanderthal research can be divided into two conceptual frames. One is that uh, the Neanderthals uh, 
were replaced by modern humans without any genetic continuity. And the other uh, viewpoint, the one opposed to it in a kind of a polar sense, is that uh, modern humans developed in many areas over, uh, over the middle latitudes of Eurasia uh, from their archaic predecessors. And these two views have gone back and forth historically uh, in regard to the Neanderthals. Uh, the last segment, I was saying a few things about uh, La Chapelle and the study by Marcel Boulle that influenced our views of Neanderthals for a long time. This was the view that they were stooped over, brutish, slobbering, stupid, and so right. forth. Um, this is still the popular view. Okay, uh, although it's changed a lot or it's become much more sophisticated in the scientific environment. Anyway, that view held until the early 60s when uh, a paleoanthropologist at Michigan, a man named C. Loring Brace, uh, published a paper which shifted much scientific opinion away from the idea that Neanderthals were replaced by us back to the idea that there was a lot of continuity visible in the skeleton, visible in the archaeology. Uh, at that point, there wasn't much of a genetic history and people didn't realize uh, or research in what you might call paleogenetics hadn't developed to the point that uh, there was rec- recognition that you could use changes in the genome to date significant changes in right. revolutionary history. Right. Well, that all changed in 1987 uh, when a paper was published in Nature which argued that all modern humans had an African origin and that that, that African origin was quite recent, uh, probably less than uh, 150,000 years ago. Uh, that paper was one of these landmark publications that changed uh, the consensus view of our origins in the direction of replacement. Uh, it's kind of a technical uh, thing to get into the discussion of the genetics, but basically um, the, uh, these were studies of mitochondrial DNA, which is a small... Uh, uh, Organelle, as it's called, a small right. element of the cell um, with a, a very small uh, genome, about 14,000 base pairs. Uh, most of these studies are based on mitochondrial rather than nuclear DNA because mitochondrial DNA evolves at a more rapid rate. And uh, so it it's, uh, provides a kind of a better molecular clock than some of the nuclear DNA. Anyway, though, uh, to cut to the chase, uh, these replacement views dominated into the uh, late 1990s, although a number of workers had pointed out problems with the uh, initial research on the, on the uh, genetic data. In general, uh, these criticisms showed that the mitochondrial DNA data were mainly indicating the deepest point in time from which we have surviving mitochondrial DNA lineages. And uh, the conclusion from that was that in and of itself, 
these pattern searches do not necessarily imply a speciation. In other words, changes could be occurring at the population level or the subspecific level. They don't necessarily in and of themselves imply extinction or replacement of one species by another or necessarily even migration or range extension. Right. Yeah, so so uh, there, there's been a shifting back more in the direction of continuity after the late 90s. And the period up until about 2002 was uh, uh, characterized by a, a variety of different views uh, with considerable modification of both extreme continuity and replacement positions. In other words, intermediate scenarios largely determined by the interpretations of the genetic evidence. But, of course, this genetic evidence influenced the archaeology and the paleontology as well. But in in 2004, uh, a very significant uh, thing happened. Uh, uh, A uh, geneticist at the Max Planck Institute in Leipzig, a man named Svante Pabo, showed that uh, there are Neanderthal genes in, found in modern populations with a frequency of uh, from 2 to 6%, which implies that there are some genetic connections between ourselves and, right. and the Neanderthals. Uh, this had the immediate effect of showing that the Neanderthals were not different biological species, but just different uh, geographical races or subspecies or populations is probably the best way to put it. And then just in the last few years, since 2006, uh, genetic studies have shown that there are other human populations which are neither modern nor Neanderthal, uh, notably uh, what are called Denisovans. Uh, after a site in, in Siberia, uh, these Denisovans, genetically at least, differed from both Neanderthals and moderns. Um, uh, at Denisova, just as a curiosity, uh, the Denisovans are the first human species, so to speak, that's ever been developed strictly on the basis of uh, genetic evidence. There's a single finger bone found at Denisova, uh, a woman, ex-woman as she was known, um, dated to about 40,000 years ago and associated with these middle paleolithic artifacts that right. have been found with, with Neanderthals. So we have uh, Denisovans, and just very recently, in the last two years or so, Denisovan DNA has been traced in populations in Asia, uh, which show that it, uh, that um, People living in in Southeast Asia to Siberia uh, interbred with the ancestors of some present-day modern humans, uh, Melanesians, Australian Aborigines. Uh, These these folks have up to 6% of the DNA of uh, the Denisovans. So, uh, and long story short, the genetic picture has gotten much more complex uh, very recently, really, in the last five years. But to some degree, and, and I think, you know, you, you more than many other people have, have been instrumental in this, 
we were getting hints of this continuity and this overlapping from the record itself, from the archaeological record, from the finds uh, in Israel at Kafsa Cave showing that uh, possibly the stone tool industries may not have been uniquely Neanderthal or uniquely Homo sapiens sapiens. And there seemed certainly to be an argument that was being developed saying that there that, that the, the linkages were, were, were overlapping rather than instinct ex- related to extinctions. And yeah, so that, that's, that's, that's very true. Uh, the, the, the Middle East, the Levant, specifically Israel, uh, is, a, is a kind of a, a very good test case for some right. of these scenarios because early moderns and Neanderthals are found in close proximity to one another. Uh, specifically on Mount Carmel, actually, um, there are both there are Neanderthals from sites like Taboon, uh, Amud, Kabara, and there are early modern humans from sites like Kafsa and School. All these all these are cave right. sites which are close to one another. Uh, and uh, it's interesting because. The dates on these fossils and their associated archaeological industries, which are all very similar, by the way, they're all Mousterian or Middle Paleolithic, very similar to one another. Uh, the dates suggest that uh, modern humans appear early in the Levant, around a uh, hundred and thousand years ago, say, at Kafsan School, and then apparently disappear. And Neanderthals occupy the region around 66,000 years ago, uh, based on dates at uh, Taboon, primarily. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what this suggests is there's kind of a shifting back and forth between the two different kinds of humans, probably driven by uh, paleoclimatic changes. Uh, The Neanderthals would perhaps have... uh, extended their ranges south during glacial episodes in Europe, uh, during which much much of Europe, of course, was uninhabitable. And modern humans might have extended their ranges north during pluvial periods when the climate of what we think of today as the Sahara and uh, Sinai, uh, you know, dry, desertic environments, uh, was ameliorated by rainfall, made, made better by rainfall. So they and, seem to have shifted back and forth over a long interval, certainly on the order of uh, 40,000 years or thereabouts. Uh, and, a very interesting uh, situation, actually. And on that note, we'll have to take a final break, and then we'll resume our discussion with Professor Jeffrey Clark after these words. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Are you ready to change your relationships, your business, your body, and your life? You'll want to tune in to Transformation Talk Radio with host Tony Litster. It's an inspiring hour of conversation, special guests, and wisdom that has made Tony an expert with personal life experience. 
His down-to-earth style will give you the keys to unlock your greatest potential. Listen for Transformation Talk Radio live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Listening can truly change your life. Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We are back for our final segment, and we're discussing the history of the human origins uh, debate to some degree and the scientific discoveries that have cast a tremendous amount of light, especially over the past 10, 15 years, on uh, demonstrating the emergence of human populations and effectively illustrating that the picture is somewhat more complicated than we had thought. That, for example, in the last segment, as we've demonstrated, Dr. Clark has demonstrated that there is overlapping between uh, Neanderthal populations and Homo sapiens sapiens, and that that overlapping had a lot to do uh, is demonstrable in terms of the genetic record to a large degree, but also through the archaeological record and through the uh, paleoclimatic or ancient climatic reconstructions that are effectively saying that people from one environmental zone moved into other environmental zones so that, for, for example, groups of people who may have been Neanderthal uh, dominant were moving south and those who are homo sapiens were possibly moving so- north and that the archaeological record does go some way in demonstrating that there was overlap here, which brings us into a more critical issue, and I think it, it, it's something that, that Jeff should expound upon, and that is effectively how does this relate to the overall picture of evolution, and how does that stand right now in the debates that we're having about evolution versus creationism? So, Jeff, uh, why don't you take that one on? All right. Um, <coughs> however, you know, acrimonious some of the debates may be in science. Uh, they ne- nevertheless, all, all of the people involved in human origins research essentially proceed from a, a Darwinian evolutionary framework. And in the U.S., at least, probably for historical reasons, uh, there's considerable conflict between science and religion. It takes many forms, waned and waxed and waned for probably 200 years, in my view, because Americans take religion more seriously than do the citizens of many other nations. Uh, 
this conflict arises from the fact that the worldviews of science and religion are difficult to reconcile with one another. Um, I, that's, uh, I think lots of uh, Americans uh, are, or evangelicals or uh, religious fundamentalists are reluctant to confront the, the enormous philosophical implications of natural selection, which is the core of the evolutionary framework, the core of Darwinism. Uh, all scientists uh, are materialists and natural selection is a materialist theory that runs counter to the notion of dualism. Uh, dualism is this idea from classical antiquity, Plato and Aristotle and so forth, that the universe is divided in the material stuff of everyday existence, in other words, matter, right. and intangible <clears throat> mental or spiritual stuff, um, of which the spirit, since it was closer to God, or it was believed to be closer to God, was the higher of the two forms. Um, materialism, though, which is the basis for evolution, in fact, for all of Western science, holds that there is only matter, and that mind or spirit is simply a manifestation of matter arranged in complex ways. As, as Stephen Gould put it, uh, the mind, or what we think of as the mind, is an accidental consequence of brain evolution. In other words, it's a product of the material substrate and neurology of the brain. Now, that's a very radical idea. Uh, it was so radical in Darwin's day that he resisted exploring its implications. Uh, actually, it's kind of interesting. He, he was afraid that it would so damage his family and his offspring that he, he, he sort of backed off of, of it, even though he was a materialist to the core. Uh, anyway, uh, most people uh, are dualists uh, in the sense that they make a distinction between mind and matter or mental and spiritual on the one hand and uh, the material stuff of everyday, the everyday world on the other. Uh, Science in general rejects that idea. Uh, it's, it's based upon materialism. Uh, in a very interesting lecture that Gould gave about 20 years ago, he, he said that materialism is not a love of BMWs. And <laughs> materialism is this idea that uh, um, there is only matter. That's a tough one for many people to confront because it applies that there there are no spirits, there are no uh, souls, there's no uh, uh, heavens or hells or gods and demons and so forth. And it raises a question that's very fundamental that has to do with the origin of religion itself. Uh, and it's an idea that Freud actually confronted in the 19th century. Right. Uh, in, in a sentence or two, what seems to have happened from a scientific standpoint is that as our cognitive capacities expanded over evolutionary time, you know, over those six million years, uh, we came to imagine more and more complicated realities. And in order to make sense of them, 
essentially populated them with the gods and spirits and demons that are the stuff of religious belief. Uh, in other words, these things exist only in the human mind. Um, so uh, that, that's a, a radical philosophical standpoint to take that many people, sincere people, well-educated people, reject. Jeff, we have about a minute or two left. How are you seeing this current set of findings and, and the incredible amount of knowledge that we've gained on the human origin situation? How do you see that uh, interjecting into the creationism versus evolution story or conflict? Well, uh, of course, the, the focus of creation science and intelligent design and so forth is the question of where we came from, modern humans. Uh, all the earlier stuff is, uh, to a large extent, irrelevant. Irrelevant, yeah. To, to, uh, to uh, creation scientists. Uh, in respect of our origins and how it influences uh, creation science um, the philosophical implications of evolution in general uh, are brought to bear most cogently on these fundamentalist Christians uh, I've given uh, lectures in Europe on this, these topics and it's not an issue over there even though Western Europe for example Europe is nominally Christian but anyway, uh, to, to make a long story short, uh, these people reject the idea of materialism in general. They reject the idea, many of them, uh, of uh, an ancient, geologically ancient earth. Uh, the earth is argued to be less than 10,000 years old. They have a kind of... Uh, uh, Linnaean view of creation whereby modern humans, animals, plants, and so forth were essentially created by God over a 20, uh, you know, a six days of 24 hours. I'm talking about biblical literalists here. Right. And none of these things are documented by science. In fact, they've been disproven categorically by science. But biblical literalism uh, privileges the Bible over uh, empirical studies upon which science is based. And, and uh, it's like ships th- in the night. <laughs> they, and they- I think on that note, we're basically going to have to bring this discussion to an end. Uh, a fascinating topic, one I know that everybody out there wants to hear about, and we will probably uh, bring this to you again in a different form. Uh, and I want to thank Jeff Clark sincerely and deeply for participating in the program. And we will see you again next week. Until then, stay well and uh, have a good evening. Good night. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.